0: This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends' 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.
1: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.
2: But the strike Ambulance concept started um, in Germany, in fact, in about 2006 with a guy called Klaus Fassbender who had the idea of putting a CT scan in an ambulance. So you could get a picture of the brain and you could decide whether it was a stroke and whether you could use uh, clot busting agents. Then it took off in the States some years later. So we decided we were really keen to, to get one here.
1: Welcome back to a very special episode of Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, who are the go-to agency for any organization with digital needs. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with Professor Stephen Davis AO, aka my dad. As you know at Humans of Purpose, we reserve milestone episodes for family members. Did you know that less than 5% or 5 out of every 100 AFL players reach 200 games? It's not the perfect analogy, but hopefully this gives you some insight into what an achievement it is for this podcast to reach the 200-episode milestone. You'll hear from another family member soon. We're actually in short supply of these when we hit episode 250, which we have less than a 2% chance of reaching according to AFL tables. Well, what can I tell you about Steve? He's one of my biggest role models and one of my best mates too. I give him a hard time at the start of the episode misnaming his recent Queen's Birthday Honours, which is a gag I've played on him ever since he won his first Honours many years ago. Steve has had an incredible career in neurology, medical education and stroke research. He was awarded his recent AO for his game-changing work in developing Australia's first mobile stroke unit, which enables early intervention and timely and quality care for those suffering strokes. Around 55,000 Australians will suffer a stroke each year, and it's the third highest cause of death and a leading cause of disability. As Dad often says, time is brain, and his innovation in this space is critical to treating patients experiencing stroke onset. Dad's LinkedIn resume is actually pretty boring. He's had the same job for about 40 years, which I regularly tease him about. This is testament to his consistent work ethic, professional dedication, and reliability. I can only ever recall him missing about two days of work in his life, both of which coincided with serious illness or his recent knee replacement. Professor Davis is a professor of translational neuroscience at the University of Melbourne, director of the Melbourne Brain Centre at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and a past president of the World Stroke Organisation. He co-chairs the Melbourne Mobile Stroke Unit Program and is co-chair of the Australian Stroke Alliance, a powerful collaboration dedicated to improving the care of the growing number of people suffering stroke pre-hospital, in the air and on the road. His research is focused on acute therapy for both ischemic stroke and intracerebral hemorrhage, particularly the use of advanced imaging and selection of therapy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve slash dad as much as I did. So, what an honour. The day has come. I'm uh, really uh, thrilled to be here with my father, Stephen Davis OAM. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's uh, really a privilege to be here. Just Great joined fun. the uh, Queen's Birthdays Honours List. Very good timing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I purposely misquoted your OAM. What, t- explain what's going on here. What, do, what are you? Um, I got uh,
2: an AO, uh, which was very nice. Which and is
1: significantly uh, higher than your MCC grading. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, I'm provisional, restricted, temporary, use by date for MCC.
1: Well, the family's very proud of you. Um, Thank you. No pressure today, but some guests have said that Mum's podcast uh, on (laughs) 150 was one of the greatest of all time.
2: Well, it's like when I was at Pilates, they always said, Sandy's doing so well, (laughs) not you.
1: (laughs) Well, what about you? (laughs) Dad, um, maybe a way to start out. Just bring us into your world a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your journey in medicine um, and then we can get into the current era.
2: Okay. So um, I decided to do medicine when I was about, I guess, 10 or 11. And my cousin, Graham, we were playing baseball in the street and he whacked me in the head uh, unintentionally. (laughs) At least he said it was unintentional. I was briefly knocked out and then had to go to the GP for stitches in my head. And I just thought the whole medical scene was... Amazing, and I decided that's when I wanted to do medicine, and um, so I worked hard and I got into medicine, and then throughout medicine I was going to do psychiatry, and then I kind of changed to neurology. It was still the brain, but I felt I was using my medical training better. So, a few little career movements here and here and there.
1: How long did you spend kind of in that psychiatry zone before you decided to focus? Years,
2: years actually. Mm. Um, I was firstly very interested in the idea of psychosomatic medicine, of the you know, link between the brain and the mind, so to speak. And I thought that could be a fascinating area to work in. And it seemed to sort of bring in the, the medical skills and the psychological skills. But then I did a term of neurology. And I think in life, you know, it's very much by chance. It's fortuitous what you do. Mm. And I worked with someone who I found pretty inspirational, who was a neurologist at the Alfred Hospital. He passed away now. But he wrote me a letter at the end of my three-month time with him and said, you should do neurology. But then when I went to see him to see if I could get a job, he'd given it to someone
1: else. <laughs> <laughs> Classy. Classic. Is it true that? Um, well, maybe I'll just ask you to tell who is the neurology textbook written by, like, the famous neurology textbook. Oh, that's a really interesting
2: question. So, uh, there's a textbook in America called Victor and Adams, which is now edited by your friend of mine, Alan Roper.
1: True, but what I'm getting at is what is the most funny thing about the neurology textbook of old? Like, the do you know what I'm getting at?
2: Yeah, I know exactly what you're getting. At. Well, stroke is. Totally changed. It used to be called an accident, cerebrovascular accident, and was a very confusing term. Um, um, people said, you know, well, what does this mean, CVA? Uh, someone later said, It actually means confused vascular analysis.
1: (laughs) Okay, so the writer, wasn't it Lord Brain who wrote the original? Lord Brain
2: wrote a textbook, Brain's textbook, Russell Brain, So Brain's textbook of neurology.
1: It's quite funny because apparently there's a thing where some people who have a name become parts of that profession. Yeah. It's like quite a common thing. So people whose name sounds a bit like dentists often become dentists. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know if that happened with Russell Brain. Maybe. I worked for one of his protégés. Um, who I better not mention, but he was called Brain's Curse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he actually, uh, during one, I was at this hospital called Maida Vale in London, and uh, he kind of fired me, actually. He really? told me, get off the ward. Yeah. Well, what Brain's happened? Curse. Oh, I, I was sort of set up a bit by an Australian medical student who now lives in London, Brian Yule, who's a, a very interesting guy. And um, the neurologist had sort of admitted a patient with progressive weakness down one side of the body and numbness on the other side, which is a classic neurological syndrome called Brown-Saccard syndrome. It means that there's a spinal problem. And he kept doing brain scans, which were normal. And I said, and then Brian piped up, hey, Steve, he said, didn't you say that was a dumb idea and it was a brain problem? <laughs> and then- the neurologist said, get off the ward. He said, you know, you don't belong
1: here. Wow. Yeah. What was it like um, being a resident or a young doctor back in the, um, the, the time, the 70s? It was different. Yeah.
2: It was different. So I remember at the Royal Melbourne, patients had spittoons where they'd spit into. Really? They'd have bacon and eggs and a fag for breakfast, cigarettes, <laughs> and they would uh, – and then I was told very early on there were a couple of agitated patients in the ward and the nurse in charge said, doctor, the way to – you know, just settle them down – Brand, hospital brand is strictly for medicinal purposes. So <laughs> I amazing. learnt a lot.
1: It's amazing. So it was very different. You tell uh, a great story about um, the the evolution of medicine. How your um, your father was who was you know famously quite an absent minded but brilliant yeah. intellectual uh, came home one day feeling very good and apparently he'd been given co- cocaine <laughs> medical cocaine. That's <laughs> true, true, actually.
2: Yeah, he had a s- severe nosebleed. Mm. And um, my mum called an ambulance and he was taken to the Ear Hospital and he had his nose packed with cocaine-soaked bandages which constrict the blood vessels and stop the bleeding. So I came in and he kind of had, uh, you know, he was euphoric. And I said, <laughs> how are you feeling, James? Wonderful. <laughs> and when they discharged him and they said, so uh, is there anything you want to take home with you? He said, yeah, that bottle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> amazing, amazing. So I think a big part of... Um our family and how you grew up was uh, having quite intellectual sort of family you know parents who were yeah. had a lot of interesting people over for dinners um, quite quite a broad mix of intellectuals academics, and all like yeah. was that the experience for you growing up
2: yeah it was a I for, like every family's have a diverse and but my parents my dad in particular through his university contacts had a lot of very interesting friends and uh, yeah, it was quite uh, quite stimulating, actually. I remember one guy who was a lawyer who had flown in from New York just for a few days to do some mining issue, and uh, I said to him, so, Alex, what, what branch of law are you in? And he said, lucrative. Very <laughs>
1: lucrative. <laughs> I think it'd be good to hear the story about uh, Grandpa at Berkeley and yeah. um, how he became okay. friends with a maybe unexpected ally yeah. in a lecture.
2: Yeah, that was very, very interesting. So Dad was at Berkeley during the time of tear gas. Ronald Reagan was governor of California. America was in turmoil. It was 1970. Vietnam War was, uh, you know, at at its sort of maximum turmoil. Um, Kent State was a couple of years earlier. And Dad did a sabbatical at Berkeley. I wasn't there. But um, in his tutorial class, there was an African-American student who would stand up and, and argue with him and, and, you know, everyone else would be silent. And Dad said to him one day, you know, Mr Smith, not everything in life is black or white. And apparently there was stunned silence and the student invited him home and they became really good friends. Oh. So it's a, it's a very memorable story.
1: It's a great story, fantastic story. Um, yeah, it's one of my favourite stories. I don't tell it a lot but I think about it sometimes. Yeah. yeah, it means
2: a lot. Yeah, it means a lot. And it means getting past the kind of superficialities of life and dealing with people as people, not as labels. Well,
1: how do you think he, Grandpa would go in the age of um, of uh, intersectionality and uh, lack of clarity around gender? And or- No, he'd be comfortable. He Dad was an amazing
2: person and he would just he, – he had this sort of uh, acceptance, I think, of people and uh, he he didn't voice opinions that often. He'd just say, yeah, oh, that's an interesting comment. And I remember one day – Asking him, Dad, um, I was going through kind of, you know, trying to work out who I was and what I believed. Dad, do you believe in God? And there was a bit of silence. He said, well, that's an interesting question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and was, it. wasn't the other one that he, he would like say, look, the pendulum always swings? That's right. That's right. Great- With
2: political yep. movements left and right. Yeah. He said, the pen, you know, democracy, the pendulum must swing. He's absolutely right.
1: He's right. He's right. So, speaking about um, science, I mean, part of being a stroke specialist like you are a neurologist um, isn't just about treating patients. You do a lot of research. You've always done a lot of research and published a lot of um, journals and fantastic papers. Um, How has stroke uh, treatment and management evolved over the past 20 years? Yeah, it's
2: totally changed. Um, so when I trained uh, in medicine, there was no treatment for stroke. In fact, when when I was an intern, I'll never forget this, uh, the admitting officer, the person that kind of controlled the entry into the hospital of emergency patients would ring you and say, Look, I'm really sorry you're getting a CVA patient, but don't worry, the next one will be interesting. <laughs> what a terrible comment. Terrible. And there was no treatment. Um, patients, you know, the mortality rate was much higher and uh, – They just weren't managed properly. And then there were a series of breakthroughs over the years. Firstly, that uh, treating people in a specialised unit, a stroke unit, with allied health, nurses, doctors, all following expert guidelines, reduced mortality and improved outcomes. Mm. And then the era of clot-busting treatments came and and treatments to remove blood clots from the brain. We learnt that early on after stroke, brain tissue could be saved by early reperfusion and reoxygenation. So that's and is that times.
1: where thrombolysis um, from comes in? Yeah. Yep, exactly. So TPA treatments and the like. Exactly. Yep. Yep.
2: Radically changed the So
1: the time between a stroke happens and the care afterwards becomes extremely important.
2: It is. So we use this kind of saying time is brain and every minute counts, but it's very interesting with stroke there are what's called fast growers and slow growers and you can predict it a bit by imaging of the brain. Um, In other words, some people evolve very rapidly, get a lot of damage very quickly. Others can evolve over many, many hours. And we don't really know exactly what the time window is, but generally earlier is better.
1: Fantastic. And, I mean, when you think back, I mean, how different is it today for medical students like your um, neurology registrars and whatnot? What are they like compared to what it was like back in the day? They're pretty smart.
2: They're very clever. Uh, Frankly... uh, I, I find with my residents, this isn't false kind of humility. Mm. They're smarter than I am. They're, they're often um, very uh, multi-talented, lots of different interests. One of our trainees at the moment has just published a, a book, which is uh, very, very impressive. Yeah, a medical book or? Yeah, it's kind of medical. It's, it's like written for pretty much a lay audience. Yep. But, you know, for example, explanations of yawning and coughing and those sorts of things, but very, very uh, nicely written. Um, So, yeah, they're very bright, very switched on. Um, The computer age has slightly gotten in the way, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you mean in terms of like how people use social media or?
2: No, I mean how they relate to patients a little bit. Like on ward rounds. Uh, I, I would like them to be <laughs> hanging off every word, and they don't. They, they're they're kind of busy doing everything on the computer rather than focusing on the interaction with the yeah that's the super, patient.
1: super interesting. Um, but you've always you've always been a real early adopter of technology. I remember growing up in our house, we had some of the first like. XTs, 286s, 386s. You will never
2: fill a hard disk with
1: (laughs) 10 megabytes. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) It's all you'll ever need. Um, But we, you know, we were, um, when did you first get email?
2: God, it must be, I don't know, 25 years ago or something, in the
1: relatively early days. Yeah, do you remember, like, I remember vividly when Internet Explorer 1 came out and we installed it and then Netscape Navigator was also around. Yeah, I remember. And then there was Mozilla. Yeah. Um, And then the internet uh, would, like, there was a dial up modem, and then you'd see the images would kind of only appear over time. Yeah. Like you'd go to a page. Exactly. It would take like maybe a minute to load exactly. that page. Yeah. So but they, they, it was quite
2: exciting. And I remember yeah. uh, with you, we were using which pre Netscape 1.1 1. Mm. 1. 1 we were using. Yep. Uh, and you'd hear the, the connection and the, the buzzing in the background. But yep.
1: it was exciting to be able to explore the net. How did the internet and email change global research?
2: Totally um collaboration yeah people so people do collaborate a lot more internationally um there's the 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 age of the single isolated research in medicine is virtually gone everyone collaborates clinical trials of course rely on people working together across time zones around the world that has its challenges also and it's been brought into focus in the covid era era out things have kind of changed
1: yeah i mean you must have spent so much time last year on zoom too crazy. much yeah, yeah too much and it's not quite the same is it no it's um it's definitely what i would say is like maybe it's a 60% of what it could be Yeah,
2: maximum that's, that's right
1: it doesn't get any better higher than that it never gets like you never come away from a zoom saying i really enjoyed that zoom
2: and what is it about some people have put their hand up and say what they think, and mm. other people, it's always on chat. Yeah. What does that say about the personality?
1: Yeah, and like the the chat and it's sort of like people inappropriately promoting certain things in the chat and then That's right. they're not concentrating on you. And, yeah, we, we found it very challenging just facilitating, um, doing group facilitations and even board and um, exec teams. Like it's very convenient in a way yeah. for everyone, yeah. but it's also less good. Um, well,
2: how do you find it uh, if there's a group of you in one yeah. place? Working in one room or is it better for you to go to your – Breakout rooms. Breakout rooms, We do breakout rooms and
1: it's good. I mean we we did a session uh, recently. I won't say who it was with but it was about 23 people in the session and six breakout groups. Yeah. And you can show people how to use tools like um, Google Sheets and Mural and then self-scribe and share screen for their group. Yeah. So you can get them all working on the same document uh, at the same time. Yeah. And it's pretty – I must say it is pretty convenient but I think – Technology has made us lose sight of human connection way too much.
2: I think so too, and
1: I think COVID has made it much um, harder for people to connect as humans, and that's yeah. a terrible thing for society.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I think no one quite knows where the dust will settle. Mm. Say in five years' time, COVID will be finished. Hopefully, we won't have another pandemic. We don't know. Yeah, uh, you'd
1: have to think that um, this is not. This is more than like. I mean, biological warfare is something that people anticipated but not of this kind.
2: Yeah. Well, some people at, did. Some people did. The Peter and of this world anticipated the pandemic. Uh, yeah. Bill Gates yeah. anticipated the pandemic. But
1: once there's one, and uh, it may or may not have come from a virology lab that's working on yeah. infectious diseases, I mean, you've got to think there's got to be more that will come. Um, we don't we, know. We just don't. Know. We can't this, speculate. I we, guess it's
2: it's it's a fascinating question. This has been it's a new world, a bit the one in a hundred years. But H one N one was a big worry. i was just read Obama's book, and uh, they're talking about the preparation for H one N one, which I think killed twelve thousand in the United States. So it was tiny compared to COVID, but um, it just faded out. Mm. Yeah. And at Ebola the same. Very. Very, very nasty virus, but fortunately didn't infect uh, that many people.
1: Yeah, I think the um, part of all of this is the hidden cost of separating people. Yeah. Uh, and We're already sort of starting to see that trickle through yeah. now, but, you know, record investment from Victorian government and the feds into mental health has sort of Critically shined the spotlight important. on that, I guess, again, which is interesting.
2: But there's no new ways of treating people also. Um, there's some, I think, been some kind of improvements with learnings from COVID, and, um, but I agree, I think the cost of isolating people is massive mm. and it's shown
1: to be massive. How much has it impacted your work in, with patients and stuff?
2: It has to some extent. Um, I do some telemedicine and uh, that can be good, but you need to know the patient first generally. Um, you can do follow-up stuff on, on a telehealth program, but it's not, it's not the same. You don't get the same interaction, particularly if you haven't met the person before but it's 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 kind of been useful to some degree mm.
1: So maybe it's a good time to talk a little bit about the amazing research and the, the grant you won from the NHMRC, quite a sizable grant, um, to do, to um, actually start the Stroke Ambulance yeah. and how that's extended since. Yeah.
2: So so like everything, this is teamwork. You can't do it as an individual. And uh, I worked very closely with my friend and colleague, Jeff Donnan, who, who you know, and many other people, Bruce Campbell, many others contributed to this. But the Stroke Ambulance concept started um, in Germany, in fact, in about 2006 with a guy called Klaus Fassbender who had the idea of putting a CT scan in an ambulance. So you could get a picture of the brain and you could decide whether it was a stroke and whether you could use uh, clot-busting agents. Then it took off in the States some years later. So we decided we were really keen to to get one here and we put it in as part of an NHMRC program bid. Uh, which which was successful. And um, we were also very lucky to have anonymous donors who put their hands in their pockets, believed in the kind of concept and supported it. Then the Victorian government came on board. And um, it's been, you know, universally regarded as a great success.
1: But- and so how often do you get to go out in the, the stroke ambulance?
2: <laughs> Once every four weeks yep. I take my anti-nausea pills.
1: <laughs> I've seen your outfit as well. It's uh, pretty heavy duty.
2: Yes, it's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a sham because I'm not really a paramedic, but it just looks like a paramedic uniform. But no, I do enjoy it. We love working with the paramedics because they've got this kind of very very simple concept: save lives, mm. get them to you know fix them up, don't let them die. And yeah, I love working with paramedics. So it is good, and we keep in touch. Um, and some of our younger doctors do shifts much more frequently, and so we have the two paramedics on the ambulance. Doctor, nurse, and a radiographer. The radiographer takes the pictures of the brain, but the new frontier is, of course, the scanner that we use is half a ton, and and uh, we'd like to get these scanners into planes and into rural ambulances. So we're trying to get uh, much lighter weight instruments.
1: So that's the next kind of iteration of the- that's the
2: new frontier. Yep. and that's our theme of our research that I do with Jeff and Damien Easton, who you've met, and uh, many others. So we're working with... Um,
1: what have your results been like so far? Like, do you have good data on the effectiveness of the stroke ambulance?
2: Yeah, it is effective. The, the best data is, in fact, not from Melbourne. It's from Europe and the US, where they've done what's called phase three trials, where they've shown that treating people with a stroke ambulance improves stroke outcomes at three months. Uh, but our data mirrors that of overseas, showing we can treat much faster. There's this concept of the golden hour The first 60 minutes after stroke onset, which not that much is known because very, about one or two percent of people in hospitals can be treated within 60 minutes. But in the ambulance, we're treating about 18 percent within 60 minutes. Mm. And we treat half of everyone within 90 minutes. And earlier treatment, you see much better outcomes.
0: this episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends fifth anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.
1: It's incredible. And so you make this the CT scanner lighter. And yep. then I made the suggestion of a stroke submarine. What do you think? <laughs> it's a great idea. Because I, I can imagine there's a lot of fishermen out there and a lot of uh, <laughs> subaquatic humans who may at some point require immediate golden hour care. I think it's
2: a brilliant idea and it's got to be
1: yellow. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's the idea that a consultant took and just took it way too far. That's <laughs> It's not right. practical at all. <laughs> yeah, well, we,
2: I almost thought, in a very fanciful way, that we should contact Elon Musk. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I actually don't think that's that fanciful. I think it's a great idea. I think it's that sounds like the type of thing he would be involved in. Um, but is a helicopter like the next frontier?
2: Yeah, helicopter, planes, uh, and sort of more standard ambulances. So uh, we, we're working with two companies in particular to develop very lightweight imaging and uh, using new techniques. Uh, a company called EM Vision in Sydney with a microwave, like like your mobile phone, electromagnetic radiation. M1 in Adelaide called Micro. Uh, that's EM Vision, then in Adelaide Micro X, who have got a very, very novel, lightweight type of CT brain scanning. And, like, you're reducing the weight from, say, 500 kilograms down to about less than 100.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. That's truly incredible. Um. I mean, there's a few places to go here, but I guess one thing I've been thinking about a little bit is you've had a pretty stellar career. You're 73. Um, like, what, you're still working full-time? One small correction, 72. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. That's a, that is embarrassing. That's, sorry, Bob. 72, my bad. Um, you're still working full-time? Pretty much. Do you have any kind of ideas about what might be the secret to longevity and sort of the ability to work until a good age and kind of still be doing all the things. Cause I mean, you come across basically as like a 40 or 50 year old. Uh, I just am curious about maybe your reflections on why that might be or what's worked well for you.
2: Well, first I, I don't really feel like I'd love to feel like a 40 or 50 year old. Yep. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's fear of the unknown of, of uh, I I've got other interests. I mean, I like travel, I like movies, uh, I like reading and, um, you know, uh, I I don't have I'm not a golfer. Uh, I like to keep reasonably fit, um, but yeah, I still enjoy what I do. I guess working with young people is very stimulating. Working with my colleagues Jeff and Damien and Bruce, uh, very stimulating at the hospital and university. So I'm in a I'm quite feel quite privileged to be able, allowed in a way to keep working.
1: Do you think um, that uh, work, like the continual work and at quite a high level and standard and duration, has kind of um, made you almost sort of flip flip the trap a little bit? Of you know, because you often see a lot of people when they when they stop work, they start aging rapidly.
2: Yeah, I see it with my patients. Yeah, uh, and they start. There is one particular place in Tuarak Village they go for coffee, and I walk <laughs> past and I say, "I better go to work." <laughs> I don't know, Mike. Look, I take it. Day by day, week by week, um, at the moment it's working for me and maybe one day it won't work. Um, but I think that
1: um, – You'll probably have to pick up a hobby if you decide to slow down. Like you might have to seriously try hard to get into golf.
2: Maybe. Well, we've played a few games together we're, and we were both I think I have zero skill. Yeah, I think we we're both
1: pretty terrible. No, you,
2: you're much better than me. Oh, but tennis I'd love to get back to. Yep. But the joints – one thing with ageing is the joints deteriorate. Yep. yeah. And uh, you know we can dissolve blood clots in the brain, but joints can be replaced, but we need a drug to lubricate them. Yeah,
1: I was going to ask you your thoughts on the advent. We've been hearing for a long time about personalised medicine. Yeah, and sort of where things are going in terms of yeah. you know the the potential to treat people based on their own individual biology yeah. and um, circumstance. Yeah, where's that at? Is that are we at that huge. stage?
2: Yeah, that's it, it is. We are at that stage. Um, we we particularly rely on brain imaging to personalise the treatment we give in stroke. Um, so that's that's been a very uh, big ad- adaptation of that concept. And I think, yeah, I think the era of personalised, individualised medicine is very much with us. It's interesting in the stroke field, there have been trials based on personalised medicine, say with imaging, and other concepts, big picture, just treat everyone with this and you get improvements. And both concepts have some validity. So there are some general things, like we know in stroke, for example, that um, keeping the blood sugar at a good level uh, with certain sorts of stroke-reducing blood pressure works across the board if you've got bleeding in the brain, um, but other concepts quite individualised.
1: Interesting. And what about um, sort of the next level DNA sequencing in the think, genomic research? Yeah,
2: I think that's, that's – we are there – to some, and it's going to explode. I think, yeah. With CRISPR and yep. like, gene editing and these other techniques, I mean, I think it'll be. If you, th- if I think in medicine, where we were forty years ago, uh, and where we are now, where are we going to be in forty years' time? Mm. Um, you know, this concept uh, with computers that the half life of new uh, breakthroughs is like eighteen months, yeah. And uh, I think in medicine we're seeing explosive. Developments,
1: so real sort of being at a stage where you go to the chemist and you get pills made for you and your condition. I think, maybe. I think,
2: I think that will happen, but and I think we have come a long way, but we still have to focus on the fact that um, for a lot of the world, I don't know if you're watching the news this week, but I was looking at what was happening in Ethiopia mm. uh, with civilians being bombed and just the poverty that people live in. These are massive challenges that we haven't overcome, and um, I think just, you know, tempers my enthusiasm for some of the more exciting advances in
1: medicine. Yeah, I mean, with the amount of human problems we've got still as a global civilization, it's kind of a bit daunting um, then to be thinking about big leaps in technology. It's like we can't even fix global poverty at this stage. Well,
2: that's correct, although um, I guess if you take the glass half full view, we're doing a lot, there's much less famine than there used to be. We're feeding people better. Uh, I'm a bit of an optimist when it comes to science uh, helping food production. Um, we've we've obviously got to cope with the challenges of global warming, but I think we probably can. Um, but yeah, there's there's still a huge amount of suffering, and that that has to be addressed. That's um, I think you just have to watch uh, SBS
1: News. Uh, well, I can't anymore because I find it a bit too um it's upsetting. The problem with news is they are more likely to hook you as a viewer by telling you something that upsets you than something that's positive. Yeah. So, I mean there's just huge currency in peddling these doom stories and a lot of them yeah. look have some a lot of elements of truth to them, but um how do they leave you as a consumer, you know, is it, is that a desirable way to consume world news? I'm not sure. Yeah, I
2: think you have to uh, preserve yourself a bit, don't you? You've you have got to do. look after your own sanity. You do. And uh, you, you can't allow overdosing of, of some of the traumas of the world. But on the other hand, I think for someone, for, for any sensitive human being, you've got to be aware of them also. Um, I think they they should influence your judgment and opinions.
1: What about switching off from things? Because you okay. get emails from all around the world all the time. Um, do you have like a, a practice in terms of a time that you don't email after? Or Very
2: good question. So I think it's best to turn off from electronics in the evening and some do it a bit later, some do it a bit earlier. Mm. After dinner, I prefer not to do any email. I avoid the computer, avoid looking at the phone too much. Um, and uh, I switch off reading watching TV, um, even talking to my wife, <laughs> they will be listening.
1: And th- <laughs> also a great activity. <laughs> Very necessary for survival, I can tell you. And but- is that, I mean, you're, you clearly understand the, the deleterious effects that technology can have on yeah. you if you kind of don't switch off. Yeah. Do you kind of apply the same logic as to why you're not all in on social media?
2: Well, I've, I've, I've been on that old-fashioned technology Facebook uh, partly, I'm not that averse to social media. I just don't seem to have time to even cope with what I've got to do yep. in life yep. with, with email, which you still have to be on. So I'm not negative about social media. And uh, I know you know some friends of my age uh, are very into Twitter, for example, and enjoy it. But it's more of a time constraint.
1: I think um, people spend way too much of their lives on social media. It's pretty obscene.
2: Well, I think sometimes better just to go and have a coffee with someone, actually.
1: Well, uh, much better, uh, like even uh, like if you look at the evidence around sort of the social connection and the, the benefits for well-being versus uh, I, I think they should, they've been able to show that the more time you spend on the social media, you're a lot more likely to become depressed.
2: Yeah, well, maybe you're more detached from people, although some would say it's a way of, of kind of linking to other people. Yeah. But maybe electronic linkage, you can – Do it excessively. I don't know. There's the the,
1: um, substitution effect. So, people who are saying, Oh, if I'm spending more time on Facebook or other platforms, I can spend less time socializing because I'm interacting with people online. Exactly. You're not really interacting. Not really. Like, liking someone's photo is not the same as spending half an hour chatting with them.
2: So, is it true that Facebook, if you do 100 likes, you've got your personality kind of worked out? What do you mean? Well, that's
1: what I. Uh, In terms of digital footprint? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah, prob- probably. I mean, what what these companies do, which is incredibly clever, is they, like, create a ghost profile of you. Yeah. And then once they've got enough sort of skeleton profiles of you, that's how Facebook's been so effective at um, ad spend and dem- demographic targeting. So yeah. they can say, oh, look, um, Mike Davis is – um you know, mid thirties. Um, he's he's got a master's level um, education. He comes from the southeast, so he's probably at a stage now where he's going to um, like have his children soon, yeah. or like yeah. he's going to yeah. do this in his career, or he needs this sports supplement. And they, you know, that they just know by trial and error what works for what people. Yeah, but there's also the thing you've probably had this experience where, just say you like a certain type of wallet and you look at the wallet once, the wallet follows you around the internet exactly. Like the next two weeks. I bought the wallet yeah. and it's still following that's, me around the internet. That's the problem. Like <laughs> one, I have the same problems. Like some of the things I own and regularly consume are just constantly remarketed at me. Exactly. And it doesn't make me more likely. It makes me less likely to buy them much I just them to go away. <laughs> exactly. It follows you around. But how much of it is a necessity for you as a kind of a? you've got a bit of a public profile and a research profile. How necessary is it for you to keep up your kind of social media presence? That's a really good
2: question. Uh, I don't focus on it. Uh, we, we have this um, company, Australian Stroke Alliance, and we have uh, publicity people that, that keep a social media presence of what we're doing with our research. And I, do, to be honest, just don't get too involved with it. I sometimes feel I should be more involved with it, but then I go and read a book or
1: and what, switch um, off. So you said you have reading Obama's book. What's What would be the best book you've read this year?
2: Gee, that's a that's a very, very difficult question. Um, I think the Obama book's actually very interesting.
1: Um, Is it, it better than MBS?
2: <laughs> MBS was amazing. So this was a book that you put me onto yeah. about Mohammed bin Salman and the story of Saudi Arabia and uh, some of the kind of changes in the society, I guess. Um, but I think the way that he handled his family was rather unique, put them up. All up at the Ritz Carlton, <laughs> but not in a voluntary way. <laughs> that was a very amazing book. Um, look, I, I, I always have three or four books next to the bed uh, and, you know, I, I flip between them a bit. I mainly read on the iPad now because I find, just find it easier, although I like hard copy books.
1: Lifestyle-wise, you're still walking every day? Yep, most days. How long do you walk for? Uh, about 45
2: minutes. Yep. Trying to brisk walk.
1: And what do you listen to? Listen,
2: when usually uh, music or talkback or something light, something that's not too intrusive. Occasionally, I got into podcasts for a while um, and uh, the New York Times podcast I've enjoyed. Yep. Uh, the Economist one. Um, uh and then our, our other friend, the uh, Michaela, oh,
1: Michaela Peterson. Michaela oh Peterson. <laughs> she got off the rails, completely off the rails. Well, you put me onto that to so yeah, Jordan Peterson yeah. just to listen to. No, him. I've, I've um, unsubscribed from Michaela. I, I can't. <laughs> I can't handle it. I'm not going to be. Yeah, I, I think where they had, where I kind of reached my limit was just the the crazy advocacy for only eating meat and drinking water.
2: That that is pretty bizarre. Um, I mean, I think I wouldn't know one nutritionist. Who would think that's a good thing?
1: Oh, it's just wacko, but also how bad for the world and the planet generally? (laughs) Very bad. What? Very,
2: very bad in (laughs) terms of the carbon problem we we have.
1: Talking about being a bit too focused on yourself and not about others, um, that's like saying, oh, I'm going to feel amazing and just also really screw the planet and the cows a lot. Exactly. Well,
2: yes, exactly. But it's kind of, I suppose, uh, a bit like you're saying, watching the news, listening to people who are out there and that in a way you can't really identify with is kind of relaxing. Also,
1: they live in a different strata. I mean, you've known famous people before; it's just totally different. Like uh, Jordan Peterson is the rock star academic of the internet and the world, really. Um, yeah. So it's just you yeah. Know. Then- well, I
2: don't know many famous people. Um, I I remember once I was at an airport and I got an airport bus between terminals, and the former Prime Minister Bob Hawke was in this little bus, and it was just. Bob and Hazel and me, and I was pretty, you know, awestruck. Bob Hawke. What'd you say? uh, I said, Hi, I'm Steve. He said, (laughs) Yeah, well, he said, said, You know who I am, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: amazing. Is that what he said? That's pretty much what he said. Oh, that's classic. And that was the interaction. That's classic. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you, you've got a really good story. I'm just wondering what story it was. It might come back to me, but um, yeah. Where were we? No, it's gone. It's gone. Okay. It may come back. Um, so do you have like, so you're walking every day. I'm walking. Which yep, is great. Yeah. You get to bed at a reasonably early time or?
2: I, I usually, I'm a fairly early to bed, night, sort of around 9.30 mm-hmm. and then read, watch a bit of TV. Uh, I, I'm a person that needs my sleep. I, I don't cope well with lack of sleep mm. um, and uh, some people are night owls, some people are morning people. I'm kind of neither.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired at night, I'm tired in the
2: morning. How uh, many
1: coffees are you drinking a day at the moment?
2: Uh, the right amount, three to
1: five. <laughs> <laughs> the clinically indicated That's amount. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I love coffee, Yelp. as you do. Yeah, And
2: uh, like the other thing that we share, of course, amongst many, Interest is the Hawthorne Football Club, and I'm glad to see you wearing the beanie.
1: Oh, I had to. I put it on for you, um, but also for me, and keep my head warm. And uh, that's,
2: that's what I'm talking you about. Know,
1: you know what I said? <laughs> I, I wore this into the co-work space the other day, and um, a guy, another Hawk supporter who works in the office next door, said, Oh, you got your Hawk speedy and it's in tatters. And I said, Yeah, like the Hawk season. <laughs>
2: well, I'm an optimist, <laughs> and we're going tomorrow. We're 17th on the ladder, I think. Yeah. Well, but it's going to be fun.
1: That's assuming uh, the, the tickets are available given the huge Greater Western Sydney yes. fan base here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's going to be fun. We'll have to see what with happens our, with, with our nephews, my nephews. Yeah. So, do you have any stories you want to tell, like, about sort of the most – all oh, right, this is the story I wanted you okay. to tell. So you talked earlier in the podcast conversation just a bit about the mind and body connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that you got to do that I thought was super cool is you got invited to the Vatican yeah. for a conference on yeah. what happens to the soul. That was fascinating. After brain death.
2: Well, that is the one of the most interesting events of my life. I was very lucky to be invited as part of a group of neurologists in particular to work out the timing of brain of what is brain death uh so what happened is that the new pope had just come in and uh there was questioning of brain death uh as a concept of death which was very important in terms of um transplantation uh uh so um there was a big conf conf at the vatican uh, led by alan roper who, who who you know uh and one of the cardinals uh and um there were probably about 20, 25 people meeting in the Vatican. And the question was, when does death occur? And because in people in intensive care can have uh, no brain function, but if they're ventilated, if they've got a breathing tube and a machine to ventilate them, the kidneys still work, the nails still grow, the liver works, the blood chemistry can be stabilised. So there are some facets of what, you might call life, but there's no brain function. And it we that's virtually universally accepted in medicine as brain death is death. But it was challenged um, by an American doctor who wrote in our journal Neurology um, and recorded, say, 160 cases where there was brain death, but people still had evidence of what he called life. And uh, this was a two- or three-day conference and ended up with complete agreement brain death was death, um, and that that wasn't uh, in conflict with Catholic theology. Uh, there were even discussions of so-called thought experiments. What happened if you had the brain in one test tube and the body in another? Where's the person?
1: Yes. Which yes. is
2: which is kind of quite provocative. Yeah. I mean, the answer is it's the brain that makes us different. It makes us who we are, mm. and if your brain's not working
1: but does that make you give you hope in some weird we're going to get a bit kind of um pseudoscience now so just excuse the departure but you hear about people doing cryogenics and stuff like this and you know people who are um very wealthy and quite aged um might decide to go into a cryogenic facility and freeze themselves so that maybe their brain could be moved into another body (laughs) uh
2: it's yeah like, I think it's uh, – look, I think it's very fanciful. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a skeptic, I have to say, yep. with cryogenic uh, brain preservation or yep. body preservation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, who knows? Your, your DNA – if there were fragments of your DNA, uh, you could be rebuilt like the $6 million man that was or a TV. Or you could C- just
1: come back as a, as a computer program. Exactly, Or something you could be in the matrix. I could be on an iPad somewhere, just sort of someone who wants to enjoy my memory.
2: Well, wasn't wasn't the Matrix that most incredible yeah, movie?
1: I think so. Probably about time that was one of the paradigm changing ideas. That, yeah, but but I mean that that's the that's the film that gave birth to the simulation hypothesis, really, yes. in in, yeah. in popular culture. So yeah. the idea that we're all and Elon Musk believes this that we're all living in a simulation. Yeah, um, which a... I find just um, it's it's a bit. It sounds to me like a theory that someone who's too smart and on the spectrum came up with. <laughs> well, he is super smart, is no super doubt smart. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
2: he's, he's, uh, he's extraordinary because probably, he's probably got a little bit of Asperger's in him. Oh, so a lot. Yeah. Different personality. Yeah. Yep. But that's given him like super human strengths in super, some
1: areas. Super brain power, but also, um, yeah, there's, there's not, he's like just a business savant. Really, yes, like yes. His ability to run these four of the most globally yeah. important companies in the world at the same time yeah. and to still be having kids here and there in his 50s, <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing, amazing. Yeah.
2: yeah. I, I have to say the world is a richer place for people like that.
1: Yeah, 100%, 100%. What are you looking forward to most in the next few years?
2: I'm looking forward to the 14th Hawthorne Premiership, number one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hope that hope every Hawthorne person in, in the club and outside is listening. Yeah. No.
2: I, I what am I looking forward to? Um look, i I, I guess health for, for all of us, of me and my family and skiing. Um skiing. Yep. Yeah. I hope to get back to skiing. Yep. Uh I as you know I had a knee replacement and uh the orthopaedic surgeon is not keen that I ski again. But
1: And you basically had two eye replacements recently. <laughs> I
2: have I've had lens implants, Yeah. I've had my knee done, I've had my teeth done. Yep. So but as one of my friends in Germany said, because uh, he had cataracts, he can now, says you now can see perfectly, said, one disability done, 20,000 to go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Many more things to replace, exciting times. Um, Dad, amazing catching up with you. And um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work?
2: Well, they can go, I guess, to multiple websites. But Australian Stroke Alliance will tell you what we're doing currently with our Lightweight brain imaging. If they Google that, they'll get to the website, uh, Melbourne Brain Centre at the Royal Melbourne, where I hang out. They can see the sort of range of research activities.
1: So they can go there in the morning and see you take all the uh, the little interns for a coffee at the best coffee place <laughs> in the
2: in the region. Well, they know the best coffee place. They they uh, uh, I, I enjoy still doing ward rounds for a few weeks a year, and um, uh, it, it's fun. We go and have coffee and chat, and it's good.
1: Amazing. So look, we won't give out your your email. I think you get enough emails per day, but people can go to the website and check that out. I believe you do have a Twitter account. I'm I'm pretty sure you I'm don't taught. know what the handle is. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> don't. But you can maybe I'll I'll pop that in the show notes. Okay, that's fine. Your Twitter. That's,
2: I I would be delighted. It's can I just say it's been um a real thrill and pleasure. Oh it's been a pleasure you know, having you I, pop. I I, I We're very close, and we always have been. I was going to say, one of the pleasures of my life. We've been
1: best mates for like thirty-seven years. That's that's exactly right. Good
2: amount of time. That's a good amount of time. Pretty, pretty good. Many more, and all you want is, gosh, uh, we just want more time. I guess more time, good times, uh, being together uh, with the ones we love. Truly.
1: Oh, that's very sweet, Pop. Great way to end the episode. And thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shalit, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.